Here is your host, TJ Buffenbarger. Hello, world. Welcome to another edition of the TJSideways.com podcast. This week, Trevor Hollis returns to the co-host chair to discuss his, air quotes, retirement from full-time announcing at Crystal Motors Speedway. And then I had a moment last week to talk to Dylan Sisney about the upcoming Tuscarora 50 at the Port Royal Speedway. But before we get into things, don't forget to support our loyal sponsors, All-Star Performance, Engine Pro, and Maxim Chassis. Let's just dive right into it. Trevor Hollis with his decision on why he decided to step away from the microphone at Crystal. So I'm sitting at home on the holiday weekend, just chilling out, and all of a sudden I see our a post from uh, my occasional co-host Trevor Hollis, who sits in the uh, the uh, co-pilot seat, that he's retiring from Crystal Motor Speedway announcing and or stepping away. I don't want to say retiring because you know that's that's a strong word, but uh, he's stepping away. So I had to have Trevor on to go. What's going on, man? You're, you're leaving Crystal. Well, you know, I, as it, isn't it everybody's dream to say you're retiring at 36? Yeah, well, I, I don't think it's uh, I don't think your 401k from Ron's going to kick in next year. Right, right. No, I am stepping away. I'm not. I, I don't want to use the word retiring. In fact, I've been pretty clear with a lot of people in the in the area that if you need to fill in occasionally, call me up. Let me know. I'd love to help out. But uh, you know, I've been doing this for 16 years. I've got a seven year old and a three year old, and we just got some things we want to do, and especially in those holiday weekends when I was driving from Houghton Lake to Tri-City, back up to Houghton Lake, down to Crystal, back up to Houghton Lake, and then to I-96 for a Memorial Day weekend triple header type of thing in the past. That got old real quick. Yeah, I did that for a long time, too, and, and you know, we'd actually take haul the family occasionally try to find stuff to do, but even then, it's, t- it's tough when you have kids to do this gig and, and do it right. That's the thing I think that people don't understand is when you're behind the microphone, if you're going to do it right, you can do it, but you're not going to do it as well if you can't dedicate the time to it. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. You know, you can't just show up at the racetrack at 6.45 and be ready to go when hot laps hit the track at seven o'clock. It's just, that's not fair to the people that are paying you to do the announcing. It's not fair to the sponsors that are putting up money. Uh, it is, and it's no fun. It's, it doesn't, it, part of the fun of this game is hanging around with people that you like with similar interests. And if you can't do that, then what's the point of doing it? Yeah. That's why the writing gigs better because I can show up at six forty-five and do my job because most of it's after the races. So sure. <laughs> it actually behooves sure. you to not be there early sometimes. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, well, it, it was definitely surprising. You, you couldn't like warn me that was happening, man. I mean, come on. Okay, well, honestly, TJ, I wasn't going to tell anybody. Um, you know, I've always when I've as an announcer, I've always went by the theory that there's not one person, unless my mom and dad are in the stands, and not even when my dad's in the stands, there's not one person that pays to hear me talk. You know, they're paying to watch the races, and uh, I wasn't going to put anything out there, but. I got a little bit of pressure to do something of some sort, and uh, that's what I decided to do. It makes it probably easier at Leo's there. So it's easier when you have someone good coming in to, to, to uh, step in there and, and be able to, you know, that you know you're leaving it in good hands. That always makes it easier. Oh, absolutely. And it was, it was while it was very difficult to make the decision to leave Crystal, uh, with Ron, makes it, he makes it easy because he, uh, he understands and he respects the decisions. He doesn't give you the feeling that, well, I can't believe you're doing this to me at this time, you know, and that definitely weighed into my decision. And listen, 2020, you can't be more 2020 than saying you're going to retire at the end of the racing season. So uh, 
yeah, Leo's there. He's way more than qualified to to handle a show. And between Leo and myself and Mark Cowan and Roger and stuff, there's there's some great announcers that are around that can help out in the emergency and, situation. And, there's, and there, none of them are officially retired. So yeah, there you go. So well, yeah, congratulations, absolutely. man, on quite a run there. That is a as a long time coming there, at Crystal. So so let's dive down to the real nuts and bolts of this. So you're not tied down every Saturday. Correct. You're obviously gonna roll your doom buggy's probably gonna find some new trails and stuff. Absolutely. And, yep, your camper's good. But I mean it can't be every Saturday. So where are you riding shotgun with me first? Well, I tell you what, one of the things that a couple of things that I've been talking to my buddies about is one of the two of the races that I absolutely want to go to. I want to go back down to Kokomo. I don't really care what race it is. A couple of years back, I went to the Grand Prix. That was awesome. I'd love to go see a, a, a sprint week race down there go, or something go like next, that. You can go later in the month. <laughs> What's that? You can go later in the month. Right. Right, right, right. But I also, you know, I want to go down to the Four Crown Nationals at Eldora and camp and stuff like that. But when it comes to riding shotgun with you, man, you call me up. I'm in. I'm in. I'll go anywhere. So. All right. Well, I know we've talked about a little 500 trip. We may have to do, yep. may have to get you to that one. Uh, at one point, you were going to go to Knoxville, and then you had a kid. Yeah, I don't know. That, that, one, that one might have to work around birthdays, but that might have to happen at some point. But I'm sure I, we can find something. I would something still love right to go to the BC39. I'd love to see that race. I, I'd go to Indy and go to the museum and all the things around that it track to do. Yeah, so. All right, so let's get down to more crystal stuff here, though. What's the best race you saw there in your tenure? Or the one that stands out the most? It doesn't even have to be a sprint car race. In fact, I'd be surprised if it was. Um, the, the one that stood out, you went, holy cow, that was really, really good. And don't play, well, don't play the, they're all so good card. <laughs> you know, I would have to say, and it actually is a sprint car race. It was the night probably Thomas Messerall showed up in, uh, in Don Whitney's car, uh, getting to call a race with Thomas Messerall at Crystal Motor Speedway was super cool. And, and, uh, he really was a class act the entire way, but you know, I learned to like stock car you know fender body cars a lot at crystal before before i started at crystal my first night announcing at crystal was the very first time i had ever been to that racetrack in my life so i got to Wait, go how are you cowan's nephew and that's the first night you go to that place because i went to i-96 for everything well, i true yeah because i-96 was a saturday night track at that point so yeah that's true so yeah i went to 96 and those are my earliest memories is is falling asleep up in the tower at i-96 speedway with mark announcing and you know that's where i would get to watch the all-stars and you know, know growing up with my dad we went to 99 percent of the time we went to sprint car races so and then you found actually and then you found that? a good solid saturday night gig yeah, yeah, and that's what I'm saying is by announcing at Crystal, I got the opportunity to experience late models and modifieds and street stocks and the four-cylinder stuff, and, and I had never been exposed to that stuff. So getting to watch guys like Rick Stout race a, uh, a late model, um, uh, Jeff Cohn run his late model, and just some of those uh, those names that raced at Crystal for years and years and years and years, and you know that's what I'll really take away is the people that have been there for 20 years before I got there and they'll probably still be racing for 15 years after I leave. Yeah. And, and that's the thing. Most of Ron's staff is the same way too. It's the same people have been working there forever. So, I mean, it's kind of, it's kind of crazy like that. 
Yeah, it, and exactly like I put in my Facebook post, half the dang people that I worked with at Crystal are in the Michigan Motorsports Hall of Fame, from Ron to Leo to Sue Lincoln, Mark Cowan. Uh, you know, there's and then there's a whole handful of other people that should be in the Hall of Fame in the near future: Terry Williams and Chris Ward, and even Ryan. I mean, in my opinion, Ryan Flynn is the best flag man in the state of Michigan, hands down. Um, as far as controlling a racetrack and, and making sure everybody's safe. So, mm. you know, those are the things that I'll take away from Crystal is the, the behind-the-scenes stuff. Yeah, well, that'll, that'll be that's, – that's a good stuff, man. I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to believe. I mean, it's like, holy cow. I didn't realize it had been 17 years. I felt really old now. <laughs> uh, not that I didn't before, but that's, a, that's crazy, man. Well, and I hope you enjoy your time off, and uh, hopefully things are not quite as crazy – next year and we actually like get to go do a normal road trip somewhere absolutely and i'm not going to be a stranger of the races i even told leo i i'll come up as a spectator and if i can announce a handful of races a year or something up there to help out then i'm more than happy to do that i want to do that i want to i want to keep my name in the game for as long as i can you know i I still think the 16 full seasons at crystal is a pretty incredible achievement when you look at the longevity of announcers at other tracks you know in general yeah exactly so well your co-pilot seat's always open here so you can drop in as you you have time so yeah good to have you and hey you know let's start let's get start we'll take a break here to start planning our next road trip and then uh later on the podcast maybe we'll uh wrap that up yeah you know tj you uh you help me live on in infamy uh randomly every year i'll get this facebook or twitter memory that pops up of one of the first four or five years that i was announcing there and i decided to put the microphone in brett man's face and and uh, you always help me remember that so that'll be a a lasting legacy i was gonna be nice because i have the audio of that and i have no doubt i have the audio but i'm like i'm gonna be a good i'm not gonna i'm not gonna dredge that up even though it's pretty close to the anniversary of that i'm pretty sure it was like within the past couple of days i'm 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 pretty sure you're not wrong in that assumption <laughs> i but i would i would like it for the record i was not gonna bring that up <laughs> well i i could that good and bad you know i've grown to work with brett for for many years after the races and, and his wife still laughs at it i was there was no offense oh, was, taken in any of that, that i was, was laughing at it five minutes after it happened for the full for the record um but <laughs> I noticed that there isn't an infield announcer at Crystal after that, though. (laughs) That was the end of that little experiment Uh real Uh fast. Personally, I loved it, but hey, you know, what are you going to do? So, all right, man. Well, hey, it's good talking to you. Enjoy your sabbatical. We'll call it that because I refuse to call it retirement. uh, My over-under is you'll be behind a microphone at a racetrack before June of next year. You're probably right. You're probably right, but not full-time. Not full-time. No Jimmy Sills. All right. Thanks, Trevor. Appreciate it. Thanks, TJ. Thanks, Trevor, for taking time out for that interview, and best of luck in your new endeavors. 
with the Tuscarora 50 coming up this weekend, I wanted to talk to somebody and have a real local feel for the event. And since Dylan Sisney lives in Port Royal and grew up a stone's throw away from the racetrack, I felt he was the perfect person to break down things for us about the weekend. We touch a little bit also on the start of Dylan's racing career and super sportsman and other divisions, along with his time on the Ohio 360 sprint car scene that doesn't get a lot of attention when people are breaking down his career. And keep in mind, we did record this interview last week before Dylan's big crash at Sealand's Grove on Sunday. So we're glad Dylan's okay. Uh, but if you wonder why you don't hear any discussion about Labor Day weekend, that crash, well, we recorded it beforehand because it was a busy weekend that turned out to be much busier uh, for Mr. Sisney after the big wreck. So we're glad everyone's okay there. But uh, without further ado, here is Dylan Sisney. A lot of guys have a chance to race at home. Well, for Dylan Sisney, that's a really frequent uh thing to happen for him because he lives right in port royal pennsylvania dylan joining us on the line and dylan it's kind of weird because i talk to a lot of guys and they say when they go home to race it's really nerve-wracking but does it help you for the big shows that you do a lot or a majority of your racing right around home yeah i mean it really works out for us i mean uh, it's kind of evolved over the last couple of years you know with all the, the good things happening around port royal speedway and the track growing and you know, races getting bigger and bigger, uh, you know, it's kind of an advantage. You know, we have hometown advantage, and, and uh, you know, now we're, races are getting bigger, so we're running on that, uh, that venue kind of all the time now, and that always helps. What is it, you know, what has it been like to see the evolution of what's happened there? I mean, I remember the port uh, wasn't nearly as nice as it is now when I first started seeing videos of it and everything, but... You know, it has become, at least for those of us in the Midwest that have been kind of stuck, who haven't been to a race, or early on when you guys were racing and we weren't, it became like must-see television almost every Saturday, and it continues to be. From up close, what has it been like to see that evolution take place? Yeah, I mean, it's been a huge change over the last 10 years, and, and uh, you know, myself, I've grown up at the racetrack uh, my whole life, so I've got to see more than just you know, the revitalizing of it in the last 10 years, I've seen it the last 28 years now. And to see everything that they've done to just transform the place into what it is now, you know, it's, it's almost unbelievable. I mean, the fans kind of see it and they know what's going on, but, you know, I get to see more of the ins and outs of all the extra work that doesn't really get talked about. You know, the big things always get talked about, you know, new grandstands and, you know, fixing up the track and the things that are really visible by the, the eye to the fans when they walk through the gate but you know all the other stuff that that goes in hand with that and fixing up the actual entire fairgrounds facility you know fencing drainage you know a lot of things that fans would never even really think of and take notice but you know they'd be uh, the first ones to pick apart and complain when they see you know rusty old fences and stuff laying around and parking lots flooded and things like that so you know just the work they put in is really incredible and uh you know, it just, it really feels good to watch it the last 28 years and my home track now turn into one of the top tracks in the country. When we're watching every Saturday night, we see it get nice and slick and wide. What is the real trick around, especially the top of that place? When I see you guys run the top, especially through turns one and two, it almost looks like there's like little banking spots or something where you can shoot off of, I mean, and gain momentum. What is the trick around getting around the topper of that place? Yeah, I mean, the the track's always constantly changing, too. Uh, 
say, 10 years ago, that track didn't have near the banking as what it does now. And especially one and two, you know, it actually gains a couple degrees of banking right up there on the guardrail. Uh, it's just tough because a lot of nights you get up there and there's not really a cushion up there. The, the cushion kind of just gets shoved into the guardrail. Uh, I've never been to it, but it reminds me of the videos I see out at Tulare. You know, it has that same kind of look to it. The, the cushion eventually just turns into the wall and it's just a, a fine line of using the banking and just kind of feeling where the guardrail is without letting it suck you into it. And just being really, uh, you got to really be on your game and, you know, pay attention to where the banking is and where the banking isn't and just try not to get yourself in trouble up there is the main thing. So we've talked about the, the way around the racetrack that sells the t-shirts, but let's talk about the line that quite often might get you in victory lane right around the bottom of that place. When you're trying to hit the bottom of that place, you see guys race around that banking. How tough is it to be patient there, to be able to run the bottom? It's tough because, uh, you know, the track uh, is a lot wider than it used to be, too. And the bottom is, is kind of slower and flatter than, than almost what it used to be. But eventually it, it's just kind of like a light switch. You know, the top is wide open almost all night long. But eventually you get to that point where you just can't get the car off the corner anymore. And and that's usually when you got a couple guys waiting on the bottom. And, and you just really got to be on your toes and feel on your car and, uh, it's almost kind of like a guessing game. You just kind of know when you start losing that speed off the corner, it's time to start moving around the racetrack. And uh, one of the nice things about Port Royal being wide and, and nice and slick all the time is it's really not just a top and a bottom. You know, once the very fence wears out, you can just move down pretty much any line you want on that place. You want to run top, middle, you know, slide yourself, run around the fence, turn down across the track. I mean, it's, uh, it's a lot of fun when the place gets black slick all the time. It's almost like a video game, you know. It's just a lot of fun to be out there driving. So I was looking through your resume over the week, getting ready for this interview, and everything looks pretty standard issue. You've seen a lot of young racers, go-karts, very accomplished in there, and various sprint car things. Two things stood out in my mind, though, in your kind of your journey to 410 sprint car racing. One that we don't see as much as often anymore is your time in super sportsman. That's something we don't see in a lot of younger kids. Now, what drew you into that class at that time? Cause it's not, you know, we used to see a lot of graduates out of the super sportsman, maybe not as many nowadays though. Yeah. And I mean, it's a great class and, uh, there was really one thing, uh, that drew us to it and it's, that's what we could afford to do. Yeah. So, we, uh, we're looking around at getting into a full size car uh, I had ran one year of 600 modifieds in 2006, and that was the first thing I ran that was any bigger than a go-kart, and we had a lot of fun with that touring series, but it was a little too much traveling, so went back to just go-karts for a year, and we were looking for a full-size car that we could run close to home, central PA, and uh, we kind of looked at 305s, and at that point, really, that was where my journey started, you know, I never was 100% set on being a, a sprint car driver. I mean, I was in the races a lot. I knew a lot of the guys, and I wanted to run a 410. But at that point in my career, you know, I'd have been happy getting into anything as a full-size car, like, you know, a stock car, late model, anything. Uh, so that was kind of a big stepping stone that, that shaped us from there on out. We found some guys that had a car for sale, and and uh, it was just really affordable to get a race-ready car, which is what we bought off somebody. So I was ready to just take the trap and start getting laps. And, and that was just a great, you know, learning 
learning theories and just trying to figure out what sprint cars were and how they worked a little bit. And, uh, and I, was only, I was only 15 at the time and, you know, racing against all these guys that have been running that series. Uh, and you got guys that have been running that series since Silver Springs, you know, years ago. So that was just a, a really neat kind of family atmosphere to jump into that and, and gain some experience and run on all the tracks that we're still racing on today. The other part of it, we were talking a little bit at off air about it was you, uh, you actually did some time over at the university of Northwest Ohio. When you do that, you might as well be racing. And you actually, that's actually the first time I crossed paths with you and, uh, watched you race was when you were doing some 360 stuff in Ohio. You know, we always make the jokes, you know, a lot of people will make the jokes. I don't make as much about posse people not leaving the porch, but you literally left the porch and moved to Ohio for a while. Yeah. I mean, I was, I was off the porch, you know, before I was even on the porch hardly. Uh, you know, I ran the Sportsman in 08 and 09. I graduated high school in 2010 and then uh, decided to go to UNOH uh, in June of 2010 is when I started out there. And at that point, we had just bought our first Ford 10 off uh, Jim and Sandy Klein in, oh, that was the early spring of 2010. I think we'd only ran it maybe two or three times at that point. And then I was off to college, so we were not really sure what was going to happen. I figured I would just travel back and forth, and I'd just run the 410 when, when time allowed, and I would run the big races, because that's the races you would want to be at. But then in the same token, you know, that's really hard to gain laps and experience when you're not at the weekly shows, and you're trying to just show up for your uh, first couple nights, and you're always at the big races. So uh, I got out there to UNOH, and was just out there on my own. And realistically, I was actually looking to do some more NASCAR type or stock car stuff with the school and the programs. And uh, at that point, I wasn't sure where my driving career was going to go or if I wanted to go more as a mechanic or crew chief later on. Uh, so all the options were kind of open. And I guess the state would have it right down the street from my apartment. So I just kind of walked in there one day and. Uh, met Marshall Campbell and I was hanging out with him and uh, going to some races and giving them a hand and and uh, after that I, I met my good friend Jim Bergeen out there and his family and he had some sprint cars out there and I helped them through the summer of 2010 uh, the guy never saw me drive a race car or anything at that point I just told him man I race at Port Royal and I'm from Pennsylvania and he said oh that's really cool what would you think if I bought another motor and I put you in my backup car? I said, oh, that'd be awesome. And he said, uh, well, don't worry. I'll even give you a little bit of money, too, if you finish good. And I thought, man, this is just great. You know, here I am. I'm out of college and, uh, you know, going to school, racing for a guy out here, making a couple dollars on the side and going home and racing a, a 410 at Port Royal whenever I want to. So I was just, that was some of the most fun years I ever had in my career. You know, it was just low pressure just racing and having fun and uh you know it's a whole different atmosphere you know in uh you know which is what it is around here and, and racing with all the guys we do you know we're all good buddies and we joke around out here but it's really it's really serious and you know cutthroat in pennsylvania and just everybody's on their game all the time and you know uh when i was out with all them guys in ohio it had that old school family atmosphere and you know guys just going to the races to race and have a good time and, 
uh, everybody would hang out after it was all over. So that was that was a lot of fun when I was out there. And, of course, now you've returned to Pennsylvania, and the results have shown steady improvement since then, and you've been picking up more wins and at different tracks, too. Um, you've kind of won basically everywhere on the circuit at this point, so you've really started establishing yourself in the Pennsylvania area. What is the end goal? Like, where would you like to see yourself in five more years in the, as far as your racing career? I'm not really sure. You know, I... My whole life, I always wanted to be a racer full time, and, and so I always wanted to, to make a living at it. You know, as the years kind of uh, click by, you know that that dream kind of gets a little fewer and far between for for everybody in the country. It seems like so. Uh, I mean, if I could be a full time Pennsylvania racer for the rest of my career and kind of do what we're doing now, you know, I'd, I'd still be very fortunate to be able to do that. And you know, there's a lot of big races I want to get out there and travel and go to. Uh, so if we could make that happen over the years, I would, I'd be really happy with that. Uh, you know, we kind of, we've been around for longer than I think most people realize, you know, we, we really started taking off the last, you know, maybe three, four years over here and, and really running strong and trying to travel more. Uh, but up until then, you know, 2010 through 2012, when I was at college, you know, we were kind of doing everything backwards and you'd see me show up for the big races and. You know, you had no lap, no seat time, and you're struggling to even qualify for any shows. And and then uh, 2013, we got our first win, and we ran just Port Royal uh, full-time. But then from there on out, the next probably four years, that was all we really could afford to do. And, and with work schedules for all the guys, that's all we could time-wise do was run Port Royal. And just the last couple of years, sponsors work just, everything that you need as a family-owned team kind of fell together for us to run more of the actual Pennsylvania full schedule. And, uh, you know, at, at this point, we just kind of go year by year. And if we can keep doing that, you know, I'd, I'd consider myself lucky. That's a really important point you just brought up. How important do you think it is as a family-owned team, or if you are a smaller-owned team, to – I know it's probably hard to scale back, but – like you said, you just could afford to run Port Royal, so that's what you did. But you often see teams try to maybe extend their stuff, maybe not do it right, and try to uh, race more on a more nights. How how important do you think it is to do it right, maybe for fewer nights than it is to do a bunch of nights and not be as well prepared? Well, you uh, you you got to run this as a business, and that's what it is. You know, uh, you got to be smart with your money and smart with what you're trying to do. And- got to set realistic goals uh you know it, it it goes back to even where we're at now you know we had a choice on where we just wanted to run this past uh sunday or uh, saturday you could uh went to sealings grove or you could have ran with the all-starter down at lincoln and a lot of people said well you should be at uh you should have been at lincoln you had two wins down there well other than our two wins we struggled down there from from speed week on all summer down there so you know we looked at a five thousand dollar win race it's 30 minutes from the house and you know you got to look at what's going to give you the better return on your investment you know we know how much it costs us to go take this car out of the garage and race it every night so you know we know what purse we got to go race for and you know every night when i go somewhere i know at least where i need to finish to at least break even for our expenses so you know that's where a lot of people get in trouble and it's really easy to do you know especially guys starting out in the 410 you know, it costs a lot of money to do it and a lot of money to maintain it. 
and you kind of get caught up in the moment. You know, you start racing local shows, and it's like, oh, man, you know, the Outlaws are here, the All-Stars are there. Man, I've always wanted to run Knoxville, King Royal, and, you know, that's stuff I haven't even had the, the opportunity to do yet, but it costs a lot of money, and, you know, if you do things like that and run events before your team is really ready for it, you know, you, you might run yourself out of money before you realize it. And going back to the family-owned team, there's a pretty good paycheck coming up at your home track here with the Tuscarora 50. You know, what would it mean for your family-owned team to win a $50,000-to-win race? Oh, I mean, it would just be it'd be huge, you know. It's, it's so much more than just a race to me. I mean, it's, it's, it's the race I've, I've grown up watching my whole life. But, uh, you know, there, there's so much more of this than just driving a sprint car for what it means to me. I mean, it's, you know, I take a lot of pride in representing Port Royal and, you know, my home track anytime we go somewhere other than Port Royal. And, you know, to if I could be the first one from the town of Port Royal to ever win the Tuscarora 50, you know, that, that'd be huge. You know, I, I got so many great family, friends, and fans and supporters around here that, that uh, you know, are there behind me every time I'm out on the track, no matter where I'm at, and, you know, so many young kids in the area that are that are always there supporting me week in and week out and you know that's uh that's the people i'd want to get the job done for so you know and it would be huge to get that payday for our little team you know that would uh that would really help us get on to the next year well dylan best of luck of course full disclosure we're recording this before labor day because you have a really busy weekend coming up to some big races at port royal and elsewhere so we wanted to squeeze you in and get you in and uh because i think uh a lot of working men out in the world and women can relate to what you're doing and uh in uh racing close to home so we do appreciate it best of luck this weekend and over at the tuscarora 50 and uh have a good have a good week all right i appreciate you having me on that's going to wrap up this edition of the TJSlideways.com podcast. Huge thank you to Trevor Hollis and Dylan Sissy for taking time out of their busy schedules to be on this episode. Don't forget, you can subscribe to get new episodes of our podcast on iTunes, the Google Play Store, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and on Podbean. But most of all, thank you for taking time out of your day to listen. and look forward to doing this again next week. Thank you for listening to the TJ Slideways Podcast.